Thank you. Thank you for being here this morning. I come every Sunday here and full of fear. That's true. And nervous. Even though I've been doing this for over 35 years. Um, I keep praying and I say to Dorothy, I says, I just pray, God, just give me a clear mind. In your bulletin, you notice there's a booklet, and you'll be receiving different booklets for the next three Sundays. Actually, if you read that booklet, it's what we've already discussed, but it's in short outline form, and what we will be discussing. For example, in this series, we will be discussing also why we have 66 books and we don't have the Apocrypha. And that's coming up. The difference between our Bible and Douay version, where they have the Apocrypha. And who says this is true or this is not true? We will be talking about that. And then we will also be talking about astronomy and the Bible. That should be an interesting subject. That boggles your mind as it does me. I don't even understand a thing about it. But it was interesting research. But today we're going to talk about historical evidence, geological evidence of the scriptures. Uh, ben, did you take your wife out yesterday? I did. I did. I took my wife to Ikea. There's a little area where they have food court, two hot dogs for a price of one. It was <laughs> cost more money to drive, it all, drive her all the way out there. We really did. We, we, I'm not kidding you. We went to Ikea. But I wasn't that cheap. Uh, somebody, <laughs> somebody handed Dorothy the video of Firestorm. Many of you have seen it. She said, why don't you watch it with me? I said, I'll make a deal. You watch it first and see how you react. She watched it. Boy, was she nice to me. <laughs> she went to the store and got me a bowl of ice cream. She, she, I said, wow, that film has got to be good. Just kidding. But, she, but uh, I will watch it myself. She did. She did see it. And she was sharing with me how great the film is encourage you to watch it and come to the um, <clears throat> Bible lessons on that. Father, we, oh my goodness, uh, where do we start? Where do we end? I just want to thank you for all of us being together this morning, just to, so attentive, singing, praising. Refresh us, oh Lord. Refresh us. Renew us. And so when we leave these doors, we can just say, God, thank you. You've been so good to us. And God, I just pray. Speak to our hearts. Help us to have a greater appreciation for your word. Now and forever. In Jesus we pray. Amen. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ... We look at things differently, don't we? Our perspective is different. When we hear about crisis, we look at it differently than the world. I mentioned to you last week that there is at least 1,500 references to his divine authorship. And because we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, and we must accept the whole thing as inspire or reject it all as an awesome, unbelievable forgery. 
we have to decide one way or the other. Either you believe it or either you just you don't. We therefore have believed the scriptures even before archaeology has been able to vindicate any of it. We are convinced that the Bible is the word of God. We can, we're convinced that Exodus has happened even if there's no reference have been found. And by the way, what makes us think a proud nation like Egypt would record a defeat by the hand of Moses warning what God would do to them if they didn't let the children of Israel go? What makes you think they would record that? So we should not be surprised if there's no reference to Exodus in secular literature. But we believe in Exodus and what God said to Moses. We believe that. And we believe in David long before archaeologists came along and said, guess what? Guess what? It's now okay to believe on David because we found him in two inscriptions. Now get this. We even believe in the story of Jonah, of all things. We even believe in the story of Jonah and the big fish long before the zoologist measure the gauntlet of the whale and says, well, it's okay if you want to believe that story. As a matter of fact, we even believe of all things. Can you imagine this as a believer in Christ? Of all things, we even believe that uh, a donkey actually spoke to Balaam. How crazy can you be to believe that? But I do believe that, that a donkey actually spoke to Balaam. That's mentioned in Numbers chapter 22, verse 28 through 30 in the Old Testament, long before the biblical scholars made us realize that the phenomena of silly speeches still do exist. Am I going too fast for you? I want you to know today the Bible expects us to believe its history. And as we shall point out in a few moments, this is great stuff, as we shall point out in a few moments that wherever it has touched history, wherever there's been archaeological find, almost always it confirms exactly what the Bible says. Now, with that in mind, we're going to park for a few minutes in Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. This is fabulous. Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12. And you're just going to have to look at it with me. Mark 2, 1 through 12. I'll try to make this as interesting as possible and uh, not to bore you. Because I know what it's like sitting out there listening to a boring sermon. I've been there many times. No, not that I was boring. I, I, yeah, I've been there too. Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, I want to show you how we cannot separate Bible history from Bible theology. I mention that because there are many people who tell us the Bible can have errors in its historical matters, but it still can be a theological reliable. And I need to point out to you that that is absurdity. Because history and theology are so interwoven that many historical events are theological events. So in second chapter of Mark, we have Jesus Christ performing a miracle. And you would notice Jesus said to the paralytic in the latter part of verse 5, and I can just picture the scene, okay? 
without going through all the details of that, these verses, look at verse, part of verse 5. I can see Christ saying this. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak such blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sin but God, God alone? Verse 8. But immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were reasoning within themselves. He said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, and here's the point, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now notice 10 very carefully. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive and sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed or your pallet, and go to your house. Now let me ask you, the same question that Jesus asked the Pharisees. Which is easier to say? Your sins be forgiven you or take up your bed and go home? Which is easier? And the answer is not what you think it is. Actually, actually it's much easier to say your sins be forgiven you because you can say it. Talk is cheap. You can say the worst, but you can't prove it happened. Because when someone's sins are forgiven, you can't see them leave the person with a video camera. That belongs to the realm of the philosophers called the metaphysical world. But to say to someone who is crippled, and you've actually seen it, you, you, you know this man is crippled, and say to someone who is crippled, rise and take up your bed and go home, now that's something else because you can witness that happening. Because that's a miracle that can be verified. Other people can watch and they can find out whether or not if this man is crippled and is able to walk. That is something that has empirical verification that is connected with it. Now, here's Christ's point. Listen carefully. Christ is saying, when I say to this man, Take up your bed or your pallet and go home. When I say those words, you see that miracle that gives you the reason to believe when I say thy sins are forgiven thee, that I have the right to make the same statement like that. I have the right. Just as this man is healed, I can also talk about his soul. Now, my point, and don't miss this, the historical aspect of the Bible its events, if you please, is so closely tied into the theological aspect that we cannot separate those two. And the Bible is a whole piece of cloth. It is either entirely true or entirely false and unbelievable. You can't cut it up in pieces. And this is what Jesus meant in John chapter 3, verse 12. You know John 3, verse 12, don't you? When Jesus says to a man by the name of Nicodemus, he says, you know, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe if I told you about the heavenly things? If you don't believe what's here, then how in the world are you going to believe what's not what you can't see? That seems logical. Now, what role does archaeology really play 
And what role do inscriptions and clay tablets and even the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, what role do they play by helping us to understand the truthfulness of the Bible? Well, the answer is this. First of all, obviously, archaeology and these various studies cannot prove the entire scriptures. There may never be an inscription of Abraham's name, and there never be an inscription of Isaac or Jacob. Never! And there must surely never be a reference of Exodus in Egypt in Egyptian literature. And why should they put it there? But secondly, let us also remember that these studies are not exact science. As they continue to work, Archaeological free, archaeology frequently revise their study and their conclusion. And we must be very careful because certainly we like to say, yes, archaeology confirms the Bible as it has many, many instances. But there are also at least few in which it seems to contradict the scriptures, and we must go very, very carefully recognizing that if all the facts are in, if all the facts are in, it would not contradict the scriptures at all. Remember a couple years ago, big headline story by National Geographic, geography. The Gospel of Judas was discovered, and it made headline news. The National Geography, Ge Geography Society was so excited about this finding that they even made a film in the National Ge Geography channel. And people were confused. And Christian faith was kind of under waver for many. And the Gospel of Judas, as you know, was discovered Rather, Gospel of Judas was written over a hundred years later, and it wasn't written by Judas. The story is, as you remember the story, that Jesus actually paid Judas to betray him. And it was discovered that that was written, the Gospel of so-called Judas was written hundred years later, and it wasn't written by this man. It was written by the Gnostics. And that's another study in itself. But let me spend a moment answering some questions that I'm frequently asked. People ask me, what about some of the account of creation that occurs in, in, in sources that are not in the Bible? For example, archaeologists discover a library in the city of Nineveh. They actually discovered this years back in the city of Nineveh. Thousands of clay tablets there. There were thousands of clay tablets, and it was a library of Ashurbanipal, Ashurbanipal. And in that find discovered there are traces of account of creation 100 lines long. And it is believed this account is 400 years older than the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. 400 years earlier than Moses' writing. The account goes back to the year 1800 years before Christ. And we think of Moses, we're thinking about 1400 years before Christ. And the similarities of the discoveries in these clay tablets were amazingly striking. It cannot be accounted for but just by chance. For example, the account speaks of time when there was just the earth and it was waste and void. 
And there was a similarity in order of creation. There's a favoring of number seven. There seems to be seven days of creation, and all this was found written on this clay tablet written years before Moses' recording of the book of Genesis. Isn't that incredible? Wow, I say. But I also need to tell you, for those of you who want to research this, I also need to tell you that there were a number of differences. For example, the Babylonian account was filled with polytheism. And the word polytheism simply means there were many, many gods that was recorded in these clay tablets as well. It got female gods, it got male gods, and there were a god of Marduk who was telling all the other gods what to do. And there were all kinds of pornographic, vivid description regarding what gods were doing. All these were written on these clay tablets written way before Moses' writing of the five books of the Old Testament. But how do we account for this if it's older than the Bible? Well, the answer is not that Moses got it from these tablets written way before him and Moses decided to clean it up regarding these polytheistic worship, and he decided to rewrite the story of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and so on. No, that's what the liberals claim, but not at all. So here's the argument. If these clay tablets were written long before Moses, then how does some of the creation story mixed with all kinds of polytheistic worship got in there in the first place? Well, the theologians believe that long before Moses, God revealed himself to the human race. God did not let centuries and centuries and centuries go on without any kind of a revelation from him to mankind. And so God revealed himself to these people. He explained the days of creation. Maybe that explains why the creation was so explicitly detailed way before Moses' writing. And he perhaps gave them other information about himself during those periods of time. And as a result of that, you have traditions of creation story, which was not accurately recorded because it went from word of mouth to word of mouth to word of mouth to word of mouth. It was alone. It was just by word of mouth for a while. Then it was written down, but it became so contaminated with all kinds of pagan ideas and polytheistic worship. So here's a story floating out there way before the time of Moses, writing of Genesis through Deuteronomy. In fact, Moses' record of Genesis' creation verified that God himself revealed the creation because these stories would not have happened simply on its own. It just can't happen on its own. For example, did you know that there is a flood stories in almost every civilization? That only makes sense because you have the flood, you have Noah, and you have his sons, and you have his daughters, and as they spread out and nation begin to build, they have children, they told it to their children, their children grow up, they told it to their children, grandchildren, and by word of mouth it spread what happened. And of course they continue to tell the story of the flood and the experiences they had by their great, 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 great father and mother. But of course the stories was handed out from one generation to another generation. It got corrupted with all kinds of pagan ideas. And so when you read your Bible, you can see its simplicity, you can see its accuracy. There's evidence that it indeed was a worldwide flood. 
In fact, there is much where a wide flood can explain that no other phenomena can explain that has been uncovered by archaeologists and scientists. There are stories of Tower of Babel in almost every civilization as well. That's mentioned in Genesis chapter 11 and oftentimes seep into other cultures as well. And this is understandable. Let me share with you two instances where archaeologists have helped us to confirm the scriptures. And there are many, many other findings by archaeologists that have confirmed the scriptures. In fact, you can subscribe to what we call biblical archaeology. It's a little expensive, but it's worth your money. Biblical Archaeology magazine, which is chock full of information. That will keep you busy for a while. Some of you may have already have a subscription to that. To that. But turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 4 through 5. Deuteronomy 27, 4 through 5. This is Moses, sort of giving his farewell speech to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 27, 4 through 5, this is Moses giving instruction to the nation of Israel. And when they cross over the Jordan River, the first thing they are to do, now notice verse 4, and it says this. There it shall be when you cross over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal, you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime, verse 4, or verse 5. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stone, and you shall not use an iron on them. And the question is, did the children of Israel do this? We know that Moses did not have the privilege of going to Canaan. We do know that when Moses died, God allowed the children of Israel to grieve for 30 days. And then Joshua took command of the leadership in crossing over Jordan to Canaan. Now, for the answer, turn with me to Joshua. That's the next book. Joshua chapter 8, verse 30. <laughs> chapter 8, verse 30. Now Joshua built, they're in Canaan land now. Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel, Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel. As it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of host stone over which no man has wielded an iron too. And they offer on it a burnt offering to the Lord and sacrifice peace offering. And I look at this as, wow, there it is. Now listen carefully. That altar on Mount Ebal. They tell us it is about 25 feet by 30 feet in terms of an area and several feet high exactly. They discover exactly 942 bones have been discovered. There were bones of sheep and oxen and goats. These were sacrificial animals. And there it is. Now, that might be a minor, minor point. But once again, as archaeologists has gone back, they were able to date all these artifacts. And the artifacts go back to the time of Joshua, of all things. And they have means by which dates can be ascertained. Yes, it's a very small point. But again, it's just like the Bible says. There it is. Who can make these things up? Well, there's more. Let's go to New Testament. The story of Jesus Christ has often been severely criticized. It's severely criticized. 
And this story, I think, National Geographic and History and Discovery Channel tells almost every year during Christmas time. For years, they have been telling us Luke chapter 2 was totally uh, fallacious. Luke got it all wrong, they tell us. In fact, you might have seen this in History Channel, and National Geographic Channel, Discovery Channel. And this was their criticism. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Verse 2, this census uh, first took place while Quirinius was a governor of Syria. Verse 3, so all went to register, everyone to his own city. Now here's the critics. Critic says, Augustus did not order a census at this time. And Quirinius was a governor of Syria at a later date. And during the census, people could pay wherever they lived. They didn't have to make this trip. And even if they had to go somewhere, the husband would not have to take his family with him. And so for years, scholars were around saying, there it is. Luke was wrong. Luke was wrong. Well, let me tell you a story. There was a man by the name of William Ramsey. Some of you may have heard that name, William Ramsey. He's an archaeologist. And uh, I don't know how he was funded, or either he was just downright wealthy. But William Ramsey, who was an unbeliever, he set out to prove that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, as you know, Luke wrote the book of Acts, was filled with errors. And the Bible cannot be trusted. So William Ramsey, after years and years of painstaking archaeological investigation, said these words. These words. Listen to it carefully. Luke's history is unsurpassed regarding accuracy. And he became a believer in Jesus Christ after all that, those years. What William Ramsey discovered in this instance was that they came across a decree in Egypt. They discovered that Quirinius was a governor twice, not once, but twice. He was a governor when Christ was born, and he was a governor later. That explains that. They discover a copy of the census. You can read about it in archaeological books. But basically it says this. Indeed, the families have to return to the city of their origin if they want to keep the titles of their land. And it confirms the fact that a decree did go out from Caesar of Augustus at that time. And it was while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Do we understand how important it is for us to believe and convince if all the facts are known all the facts are known. We have in our hands, in your hands, a very, very reliable book. Think about that. It is the word of God. I used to subscribe to the most reliable theological journal on the planet Earth called Time Magazine. No pun intended years ago, but I stopped wasting my money on these so-called intellectual reporting. Anyway, let me quote one of the articles. It says this, few scholars believe in the miracle like Moses, burning bush, Jesus, or his so-called resurrection will ever be proved scientifically. That's Time Magazine saying that. And I'm reading that and it says, I don't understand why they even bother wasting their ink writing stuff like that. It's quite foolish. 
Because I was taught when I was going to high school in science class, I was taught to prove these things scientifically. Scientific methods, from my understanding, are dependent upon observation, gathering of data, the repeated experiments, the hypotheses are developed, and hypotheses are tested. That's what I was taught in science class. Not only is the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the burning bush not proven scientifically, but I tell you with absolute certainty that the existence of Napoleon could not be proven scientifically either. You don't prove historical events scientifically. Scientific investigation has to do with whole duplication of events. The repeated experiments, for example, if you want to know whether or not if ivory soap floats, and that's what ivory soap is known for, right? If ivory soap floats, guess what you do? You buy some ivory soap, right? And then you get some of your neighbors to buy ivory soap, and you call the preacher up to buy some ivory soap. And so you buy ivory soap, and then you test it in all kinds of testing situation. You test it in tub. You test it in river. You test it in storms. You test it in ocean waves. You go to Niagara Falls in New York and drop it in the fall. And watch it drop and see if floats or not. That's what you would do. You test it until you're so convinced, yes, ivory soap floats. Uh, I'm not getting any money from ivory soap company for telling you this. Oh, by the way, no extra charge. Ivory soap originally was called white soap. That's what it was called. And the story goes that Harley Proctor, one of the brothers of the Proctor family, is the founder of Procter & Gamble, heard a message from Psalms 45, verse 8. If you want to be curious, there it is. Psalms 45, verse 8, at his church, which read, All thy garments smell of myrrh and alloys and it out of the ivory palace whereby they have made me glad and hardly practiced. Ah, there it is. That's going to be the name of my soap, Ivory Soap. No charge. You cannot test the events like that. Of course you can. You can't prove it scientifically. But they can prove it historically. In a sense, manuscript evidence of the New Testament overwhelmingly strong in comparison to all the other manuscripts found regarding ancient literatures, whether it be writing of Plato or Greek history. I like the writing of Bernard Ram. I have two books written by Bernard Ram, a theologian of his time. He writes, there's no other books that have been chopped up, knives, scrutinized, sifted. What book in psychology or religion or philosophy or classical literature or modern time is such a mass attack as the Bible? And the attack has been with such venom, skepticism, with such toughness upon every line, every chapter, every word. He says a thousand times over the death meal in the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession form, inscription is cut on the tombstone, and the committal read, but somehow the corpse never stay put. just keeps rising to the top. Friends, the Bible has enough evidence for those open to believe and listen carefully, but not enough evidence for those who are closed to believe. I don't know what to say to those who refuse to believe. If someone says after hearing all this and says, Kim, I'm skeptic. 
Well, I can't prove otherwise. I just shrugged my shoulders and said, okay. But if you approach the Bible and says, you know, I don't know. I don't know or not if it's God's word, but I'm going to read it and I'm going to ask God to show me because I'm open to the possibility that God has spoken. Then why indeed for you there is much evidence? Let me give you a biblical proof of what I just said. Sometimes we're like Thomas, recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 25. You know the story about Thomas, don't you? The disciples have seen, already seen Jesus Christ, and they got excited, and they went over to Thomas and said, Thomas, we've seen him, we've seen him. They were really hyper about this. And Thomas, like some people I talk to, well, I'm not sure about this. Look at John chapter 20, verse 25. This is what Thomas says. Unless I see in his hands the prints of the nails, and I'm able to put my finger into the prints and to the side, I will not believe. About eight days later, Jesus very graciously, because he's God, you know, knowing what Thomas was thinking, he very graciously came through the closed door without opening it and says in verse 27, notice, then he said to Thomas, and I think he stood there kind of smiling at him and said, Thomas, I know what you're thinking. Reach your fingers here. And look at my hands. And then Thomas, reach your hand to my side where they spare me, put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then verse 28, this is all Thomas said. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord, my God. End of the story. You see, the disciples were not, <laughs> friends, I need you to know, and you need to know, the disciples were not gullible fishermen believing everything that came along. They were hard-headed people. They were hard-headed fishermen. They were skeptics even after being with Jesus for three years and seeing all kinds of miracles happening before their eyes and seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, feeding of the 5,000 with two fishes and five barley loaves of bread. After seeing all those miracles, they were still skeptical and they were hard-headed. They weren't gullible people believing everything they heard or see. They wanted evidence. And thank God Thomas was an honest doubter. He was a doubter who was willing to believe if the evidence was there. And Jesus very graciously granted the evidence and said, Thomas, here it is. Here it is. That's the kind of God we have. He understands the doubts. And he understood these fishermen. How skeptic they were. And by the way, guess what? Your names is in the Bible. Did you know that? It's in the 20th chapter of John, verse 29. Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then Jesus says this, and this is to you and to me. Blessed are those who have not seen me, but believe. 
blesses John, blesses Mary, blesses Paul, blesses Chris, blesses Peter, Jane, Sally, Daryl, who haven't seen, but yet they believe. You see, there is enough evidence for those who are open to faith, but not evidence for people who says, I will not believe, period, no matter what you say. Well, I don't know what to say to you. End of the argument. In fact, if we have 100% proof, think about this. If we have 100% proof, we would need faith, right? Our faith is a reasonable faith. It's a sensible faith. It's faith based on good evidence. But it's not absolute for those who do not want to believe. Let's suppose, and I, I thought about this. Let's suppose we could go back 2,000 years ago and go up the hill of Calvary where Jesus was crucified. And there we stand at the bottom of the cross watching him die. Blood just coming out from his forehead, gushing out from his body from the wounds. Uh, we're watching him die on the cross. Or let's suppose some archaeologists find that they discover that says Jesus died on the cross. Here's the proof. We found some uh, archaeological evidence that there was a man by the name of Jesus and he did die on the cross. And he even gave the inscription above the cross when he died. That's be another movie for uh, uh, Indiana Jones series. But let's suppose they did found all these evidence. Would the skeptics believe? No, all the skeptics were saying is, oh, well, okay, you convinced me that Jesus died on the cross, but I wouldn't believe that he was crucified for my sins. They wouldn't believe that either. They just believe that, okay, there was a man named Jesus died on the cross, but for my sins? No. They wouldn't believe that. You see, to believe that Jesus was crucified for our sins and for you, to personally believe it, that is actually, and get this, that is actually the work of the Holy Spirit because Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 44, no man can come to me except the Spirit, the Holy Spirit draws him to me. You can't come to Christ until, unless the Holy Spirit draws you to him. And that's what it says in John 4:44. That is the miracle of God. Someone may say, well, if that's the miracle of God, then why do you spend all that time preaching? Because during preaching, God just may do a miracle. And someone may come to know Christ. Close your Bible. I got to tell you this story because it is too good to pass it up. I debated about sharing this, but I thought, well, why not? I was saying to Steve when we were praying in the office before the service, I said, you know, Steve, one thing I wish when I was much younger in the Lord, I wish I had a pastor who would spend time preaching a series like this. All the things you're hearing from this pulpit is what I wish the pastor would have shared. Let 
Dr. Lutzer, senior pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He also teaches pastor procedures and homiletics at Trinity Seminary in Deerfield, Illinois. It's just a suburb of Chicago. He tells a story. Pastor Lutzer was trying to figure out how to impress the students that it is while we were dead in trespasses and sin that God raised. And unless God raises the dead, spiritually speaking, preaching is useless. And I was trying to figure out how to convince the student of that. So he decided to take, this, take them to a cemetery. <laughs> he, a picture of the scene. So he decided to take them to a cemetery in Deerfield, Illinois. And they came to a tombstone about four foot high with a man buried in it named Jonathan and his wife buried beside him was named Adrian. And it had a date, died 1912. And so Pastor Lucer says, quoting the scriptures to the students, we were dead in trespasses and sin and God sovereignly made us alive. And then he read Ezekiel 37.4, which read where God said, Ezekiel, preach to the dry bones. And so he turned around to one of the students and said, Tom, would you be obedient to the word of God as God commanded Ezekiel? Tom, would you preach to Adrian and Jonathan? Tell them, it's a resurrection morning! It's time to get up! And Pastor Lutzer stared at Tom like, I dare you. And you know what? Tom wouldn't do it. So Pastor Lutzer, in all respect to you, nope. So Dr. Lutzer says, well, if you won't, I'll do it. So he did. He went over, and Pastor Lutzer shouted, Jonathan! Adrian! The cars were passing by. <laughs> Rise up! It's a resurrection morning! And then I paused, looked at the student, looked back at the tombstones. Boy, was I glad nothing happened. <laughs> And then I said, students, do you know what the problem is? They couldn't hear me. So I went over closer to the tombstones, and I shouted even louder, Jonathan, Adrian, wake up! It's resurrection morning! And there was no resurrection. And then I turned to the students, and I said, how do you think I felt doing that. And what the people must be thinking as they were driving by the cemetery. Pretty stupid. Pretty silly. Pretty dumb. So stupid that Tom won't do it. Folks, listen carefully. That's just the way it is when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. are when we share the gospel to the people. And there are times where you feel silly and where you feel stupid. 
And maybe that's the reason why a number of believers don't share the gospel as we are, because we don't want to feel like a fool. But remember this, my friends, in Psalms 14.1 says, it's the fool that has said there is no God. We're doing something that is absolutely silly, apart from the fact that God might create a, create, a, create a resurrection. And then Lucius says, I read the rest of the passage, which reads in Ezekiel 4 through 9, paraphrasing it, when he preached the dry bones, God took flesh and put it in the bone after the flesh, and God came and breathed life into the bones, and they live. And he said to the student, do you believe this? It's written in the Bible that God did. Do you feel stupid at times? My first sermon I ever preached was in central Arkansas, a little town called Ozark, Arkansas. It's between the mountains. It is the heart of Ozark. University of Arkansas was only 35, 40 miles away, up in the hills and the valleys and, and so forth. And Fort Smith was 65 miles, a little town called Ozark. I was not studying to be a preacher. Truthful, I went to Bible school to find a wife. It's true, true. Because I figure, where else can you find a good Christian woman, you know? But God led me to Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago years later. But I had no desire to preach. I don't, that's just not in me. I mean, I have problems speaking. That was far from my thought. And the prof came up to me and said, Kim, you're going to be the first one. And it was an organized street meeting, and I didn't want to do it. I went up to the prof, and I begged him, please, sir, could you choose someone else? I'm just learning. I, I don't know how to do this. He said, nope. It was an organized street meeting. And and the day came, and I've studied uh, for a 10-minute message in the street corner, a busy intersection, highway that meets from Fort Smith, Arkansas, to Little Rock, Arkansas. And I stood, and I spoke the best I knew how. Cars were going by honking their horn and giving me the finger signs and whatever you can think of. And I stood there, and I felt like a fool. So foolish. And that's how we feel sometimes, don't we? I would never forget that. You know, we can argue for hours about historicity of the Bible. No matter how much evidence there is, people can still turn away and walk away. The real issue is this. If you come with a hungry heart, and willing to say, God, I long to believe, believe in Christ who died for me. You can be saved right now, right now where you're sitting. This moment, and saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died for sinners. I believe. That's all it takes. And you can do that now. If the Spirit of God is drawing you, and you may ask, well, how do I know if the Spirit is drawing me? Oh, you will know. You will know. I can't tell you how, but you will know. Pray like Thomas. 
I will not believe until I see evidence, until I can put my finger in his hands and put my hand to the side. I will not believe. And Jesus graciously provided him the evidence. Thomas, here am I. Go ahead, put your finger, palms in my hand, and go ahead, put your fist into my side, whether spear me. Thomas did. And then he wept. I think he did, because all he said was, my Lord, my God. My Bible says in Acts 16, 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And when you are saved, you will know. You will know. You will know. Thank you for being so tentative. Father, thank you so much. You've given us all the evidence and proof that we ever need. I want to walk out here knowing more about you than I ever did. My faith has increased more than ever. And the desire to love you and serve you increased more than ever. And to be faithful in the calling. May that be true for every one of us here. And as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand, shall we?